Hello and welcome to the Photography-ish podcast. Thanks ever so much for coming back to the Photography-ish podcast this week. In today's episode, we've got a great interview with content creator Mikey McManus coming up in a little bit. We're going to be talking about straight out of the camera photographs and whether they're any good or not. But we're going to kickstart the show with some life hacks when you're using a small camper van. So many people dream of owning a camper van. It's perhaps the ultimate dream of van life, traveling the roads, visiting new cities, viewing incredible landscapes, discovering hidden gems. I'm very fortunate to have a camper van myself. You don't have to spend a lot of money to have a decent camper van and they don't have to be huge either. There are lots of ways to travel in style in a small camper van and that's what I'm going to look at today. So the first thing to do is you need to get to know your van. What's one of the important things to, to say to begin with? Before you take any long trips, try a couple of short ones first, maybe even to an established campsite where you can, you can get a feel for what you need and perhaps how you can change the layout. You might pack things, you might take things with you that you don't use, so this can be a test to see what you can leave at home next time. You also need to be able to do basic maintenance on your van, know a little bit about how it works and if something goes wrong, which it probably will at some point, it is a camper van, you'll be more inclined to have an idea of what the problem is. I'd also advise having a breakdown cover as well. You need to look at what you pack, what you can leave behind and what you really need on these camper van trips. In a small camper van, there's a limited amount of space. So if you pack something you don't need, it takes space away from having something that you do need. Invest in some packing cubes as well. These are medium sized bags, which you can put inside your main bags. It separates your clothing out so it doesn't all get mixed up and it's a bit more organized. You could even use one cube for each day. So all you have to do is get that cube out and you've got a fresh outfit for that day. That's even better if you're coming back to the van absolutely soaked, drenched to the skin, and you want to get changed quickly and warm up. Packing cubes can help organize your gear and avoid your space looking cluttered and messy, which nobody wants. So organization is key. Space in your van is limited, so the things you do decide to pack and take with you on your adventures need to be organized properly. There's a well-known phrase of a place for everything and everything in its place, and that helps you to avoid the stress in a confined space, which it can get quite stressful. But if you're living in and sleeping in and cooking in and eating in and doing everything else in your van, you need to have some plans in place. With the idea of being organized, you need to have some idea of what you're going to eat. Tin food and packet food are great for going off grid, but you can also enjoy fresh food in your cooking as well. If you've got a fridge and a leisure battery, or if you're on a campsite and you can hook up, anything you can cook in as few pans as possible is perfect. So stuff like chili and pasta, one pot stews using canned meat and vegetables is easy. Simply tip it all in, mix it up, heat it through, and then devour. Single-use capsules of UHT milk that you can, you know the ones that you can get from supermarket cafes? They're ideal for your cups of tea and coffee. They last ages, and you can just use one at a time, meaning there's no spillages. That's the same with condiments as well. Save those freebies from restaurants and fast food places. For munching on your travels, you need to keep a stash of decent snacks, healthy ones as well as treats. Granola bars will last for ages and be there when you need them. The same with individual flapjacks, brownies, cake bars. Make sure to have some fresh fruit as well. Apples and oranges will help boost your vitamins whilst on the road. 
if you're using your van as a base to go hiking and explore the landscape, you need snacks to pop into your bag for, for the hike. You'll also feel peckish when you get back from your walk. And if you're watching the sunset too, snacks are paramount. You need to know about where you're pulling up. Some places are completely fine and you'll come across no problems at all. But there are also issues with permits being needed, like in and around Loch Lomond in Scotland, overnight stays not being allowed in parts of the Lake District, and sometimes you can just annoy the local people. If you're not staying on a proper campsite, you need to be in a safe and secure location which doesn't affect traffic. The idea of campervan trips, though, is to enjoy the wonder of the world. So if, if you're near the coast, park with a sea view. If you're in the mountains, look for a beautiful vista that you can wake up to in the morning. Even better if you can just open the door or pop the boot and witness a new day dawning. Small campervans are ideal for this as you don't need a lot of space to pull over and enjoy somewhere picturesque. I'm going to talk about two really important things now. If you're going off grid, it gets very dark at night. This is also amazing for stargazing, but not so good for finding things in the dark. Even campsites can get pretty dark at night, so you need to know where your torch is. You might even need a torch if something happens to the van if you're driving at night, or that late night toilet visit. So you need to have a designated spot where you know your torch always is, and you can access it should you need to. The same with your shoes. You're walking around all day in the same pair of shoes. It brings its own challenges with it. You might be hiking through mud, your boots might get wet, your feet will sweat. Make a place where you can easily access your shoes when you need them. Ensure they're well out of the way when you're sleeping though, because no one wants to sleep near stinking shoes. And having them thrown around in the van just spreads muck and dirt. So know where your shoes are when you need them. But perhaps the most important thing, one of the main parts of owning a camper van is adventure. Sharing those adventures makes them even better. Explore and make memories with friends and family. Having loved ones along with you on the journey to enjoy the journey and discover amazing locations makes the trip even more fantastic. Small camper vans offer so much joy and accessible adventure in the great outdoors. Pack what you need, know what to do if something goes wrong, but get out there and make fantastic memories. So we've now got the interview on today's Photography-ish podcast and we've got Mikey McManus on the podcast. Hi Mikey, how are you doing today? For those listeners who don't know who you are, please tell us a little bit about yourself. My name's Mikey, I live in Scotland, uh, currently in Dunfermline, of which I moved to from Oban last year. I am a cameraman and drone pilot uh, and I work on film and TV productions. I'm also, uh, I also run a company called MMCM Media, which provides uh, media support for businesses and corporations, uh, corporate brand, uh, weddings, music videos, pretty much anything that's uh, of interest and will help pay the bills. I've done that for nearly 10 years now. Uh, prior to that, I was an offshore diver uh, in the inspection industry. I did a lot of video and photography underwater. And prior to that, I was in the military. Uh, I left the parachute regiment of which I served for 16 years. So I've had quite a varied um, past, but accumulatively the skills I use every day in my job now, um, making sure I get the right shot in the right places and work, work with people and brands and all that kind of thing. So uh, yeah, that's what I do. 
So you're a commercial drone pilot, a cameraman amongst many other things. You're very creative. What's one of the standout productions that you've worked on? Yeah, commercial drone and camera work uh, in this industry now. It, well, it used to be back in the day you could, you know, they had budgets for teams. You'd have a cameraman, a producer, uh, you know, a researcher, runner, sound guy, and they would all be working uh, in tandem for whatever the job was. But nowadays, the money's a little bit less, so the the, the productions are always looking for multi-skilled individuals. So uh, I work as a producer director sometimes on programmes where I have to shoot and do the audio and the drone, uh, you know, on my own, on location. I primarily work in the sort of um, factual entertainment or observational documentary areas, uh, which is probably the observational doc or historical side of, of more interest to me because it's uh, in keeping with uh, an interest that I have in history. I did go to uni, I did do a degree in history, went on, did my PhD in anthropology. So I do have a, uh, an interest in it. So I like shooting architecture and historical buildings, uh, locations, battlefields, castles, and you know, the landscape and the structures that sit within it. So um, I, work, I work in quite a lot. But in terms of standout productions that I have worked on, that's quite a hard one to answer. There's ones I can't actually say because I've been working on things that are on the QT uh, for films that were filmed last year that haven't the press don't know about, so I can't really say anything about it. And uh, same with some TV shows as well, actually, now that I think about it. But, uh, I mean, I've worked on lots of things uh, in Scotland uh, and all over the UK, but I think one in particular that I did enjoy doing was a, a show for Channel 4 called uh, Britain in a Hundred Homes with the host Phil Spencer, who you might know from uh, Location, Location, Location. And basically it was following the history of the whole of Britain, United Kingdom, and its dwellings and houses and how they changed throughout the ages, you know, if you go all the way back to Neanderthal times when they lived when we lived in caves and how, you know, we went from that right the way through uh, history, you know, whether it would be a round house or a hut or a hovel or a prefab or a brick built house or a castle or a stately home or how it was built, when it was built, the period it was built and all the way through up to, to present day and the quickness of houses and the way they're thrown up nowadays and how they differ uh, and for me that ticked multiple boxes because I mean I travelled all over the UK, I went, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I've now filmed as an aerial pilot in every major, I've filmed on every major coastline in the UK, I've certainly filmed in every county in England now and I filmed in every major town in Scotland. I think there's parts of Scotland I haven't properly made it to, but you'd be I'd be hard pushed to name a place that I haven't filmed in the UK. And uh, you'd be hard pushed to for me. Well, I'd be hard pushed to say that there isn't a, a structure or place that I haven't filmed in um, castles and keeps and the likes and some fantastic places. Um, so yeah, that was called Ho Britain and Hundred Homes, and I think you can still watch it on Four OD, uh, the on-demand channel. Uh, I thought I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it because the history behind it was really, really good, and the visuals and the camera guys that I worked with as well. Uh, we all were all in separate teams shooting places. It was um, yeah, it was really, really cool. I remember watching an episode of that actually. I really enjoyed it, and I will go to Four OD and check out the rest of the series. So where do you find inspiration, both in everyday life and in your creative life too? Inspiration for me is a hard one because I I have that up and down 
Uh, sometimes I can be really, I feel really inspired, and then there are times when I, not, not especially. Uh, I suppose this is the worst time uh, at the moment during this pandemic to try and harness any sort of inspiration because you're kind of limited to your geographical location. But for me, inspiration, both creatively and in everyday life, comes from music. And uh, I've always been a huge fan of music since I was old enough to remember. I always remember having all the old vinyl out when I was younger. It wasn't really music I'd probably listen to now. I always seem to remember the swinging 60s uh, was a, a big thick vinyl box sitting in my mum at my grand's house actually that my mum ended up with and it had um, you know uh, really really odd music on there. Uh, I mean obviously there's notable uh, bands and people from the 60s but this this was like a 10 album pack full of 10 vinyl with songs on it I'd never heard the likes of before and it groove, melody, that kind of thing and I started to fall into the, the sort of, uh, you know, I just listened to things that interest me and I found that soundtrack to your life really works with me so if I hear a song and I close my eyes I can imagine what that song uh, evokes uh, you know, if I'm out driving, you know, I can imagine a good driving song or if I'm filming and I've got the drone in the air and I'm tracking with something or I'm doing something, music jumps in and out of my brain really, really quickly and it's that that inspires me. I've done it loads of times on my own uh, where I've heard a piece of music and I thought, oh, wow, that would sound really cool applied to, you know, insert idea here. And... Uh, that's where I've always been when I went from school all the way through. I always had, you know, a Walkman, a Discman, uh, and, you know, later on till your MP3 players and the likes. When I was in the army, I listened to music all the time uh, because that was my, my escape from everyday life. If I was lying in my bunk or whatever and I could just stick my headphones on and listen. Uh, but yeah, music. Uh, rock and metal is my primary source of inspiration. But I'm not limited. I'm not limited to it uh, because I'm inspired by so much, uh, whether it be, you know, hip hop, trance, pop, um, R&B, you know, uh, classical film scores, anything that really has a good beat to it, anything that has that just a note in it. I'm, I like a minor note. I like sad things. Um, that's just kind of I don't know how I am. But uh, I, I like to do the, I like the juxtaposition of the sad music with something epic, you know, or uh, how someone struggles against something and rises against it, all that kind of stuff. And it, it sounds it sounds really contrived now that I'm saying it out loud, but music for me is just so epic, and you can it can either make or break something visually that you're wa you're watching if the right music has um, has been used, and if it hasn't been used correctly, it can you know, really really switch people off. So yeah, I'm I really much you know. You look at any of my aerial videos or any videos where it's just where I'm just making a video, a short film or something. I always go for the epic because I really like to drive home the drama. But similarly, I I do like to add that that harder edge to my stuff as well in a rock and metal sense. And uh, yeah, yeah, no, all the way through my life, uh, I've been in bands and I've worked on all sorts of stuff. And music's always been at the forefront. I mean, my daughter is called Coda, uh, which is a musical term, and um, my wife and I are both uh, advocates of, of music and we, we love it and we both play and things. So, yeah, uh, every day in creative life, all about the music. You're a big advocate for your native Scotland. Your Love Letters to Scotland video is a latest illustration of this. But where is your favourite Scottish location to visit? 
I love Scotland, yeah. Uh, I'm not a traditional uh, nationalist, if you will. Uh, I do, uh, ironically, I was born in the Channel Isles. Uh, I'm actually from Jersey, uh, born in St Helier, although both my parents are from Glasgow. Um, but I've lived most of my days in, in Scotland. And while I appreciate a lot of Scotland, there is a, there the other side of it. I don't really... I don't get on board with the touristy biscuit tin side of Scotland. Uh, I mean, although I'm a big fan, I don't mind shortbread. I love haggis and uh, whiskey and the likes. Uh, but sometimes I don't like the packaging that other people see us for. Um, like when I got married, I didn't wear a kilt, not because I dislike it, but because I just feel it's a bit too cliche. And I uh, I opted for something a bit more me uh, when, uh, when we got married. So, uh, but yes, I one thing I do enjoy about Scotland is is, is landscape. You know everything about it and its people. Um, we it's a very it's a very proud nation. Uh, it's, a, it's a cracking looking country. You know, and it can look so different from the east coast to the west coast. Um, I've lived on the west coast. I've worked out on the Isles, and I've did a lot of uh, you know work and lived out there. And, and similarly on the east coast, which uh, I like, its jagged cliffs and jagged coastlines and uh, thrashing seas I do I do I do enjoy the east coast a lot the west coast has its uh, its benefits also has its negatives and the, there's more midges over there and I hate midges but then I've never met anyone that said they do like them but certainly uh, my favorite part of Scotland is right in the middle I'm a big fan of the central highlands and you start around about Perthshire perhaps Blair Athol and then just start working right all the way up towards Aviemore um, if I was to kind of travel the way up through, if you go to places like Aberfeldy, which is right in the middle, uh, you know, you've got green forest hills on both sides, you've got the River Tay running through it, and there's uh, inspirational places to go to, like the Birks, which is like a national park there. You can walk all the way around it. Robbie Burns wrote a poem all about the Birks of Aberfeldy. Um, there's, it's just a cracking place to see so much. You know, you've got Loch Tay, the River Tay, the River Tay comes out of it and it winds its way down the valley, and you've got these hills on either side, and it, it just on the right autumnal day. I mean, I'm a big autumnal fan. I love autumn. It looks absolutely spectacular, and those walks as well are just are amazing. But if you head up Scotland through those central highlands up towards Newton Moor. You know the hills and the, the flat landscape where you can see where the ice glaciers are carved through it. It is ah oh, man, it is breathtaking. And um, I suppose the only reason I wouldn't move there now is because I've got such a young family. Uh, but I've always I liked it when I was younger. We used to go on holiday there, and uh, I used to like the little villages like Aberfeldy. They, they had a little pitch and putt, and my dad used to play golf. He used to fish on the river, and but I was always really really taken with the large trees and just just this landscape. It just looked amazing. And uh, I, I filmed there last year. Uh, it was actually a programme all about the railways and the, and the old railways and the current railways of Scotland. And it rekindled my love for that whole part of the world. It's amazing. I really, I really do enjoy it. So, yeah, go to the coasts. Yeah, but certainly, how about you look at the middle of it, the middle of Scotland? There's some undiscovered gems there. And uh, it's certainly, yeah, that's one of my, my favourite locations to visit. Yeah, the coastlines are fantastic, but I'll off your recommendation, I'll be certainly checking out Central Scotland. So just like me, you have a YouTube channel. How important do you think that platform is to your work today and other people's journey too? I think YouTube is an important platform. It's an important platform if it's used correctly and 
you know, you can be broken down into a, a few, I mean, there's people who have a, a YouTube channel who just do it for fun. You know, it's just a place where they can make silly videos, put them out, people have a laugh and they just switch off. Then there's the other end of that scale where there's actual fully fledged channels who are actually bringing information and facts and or, uh, you know, education or, um, you know, just a media content that's worthy of watching. And it's a great platform for that where, you know, everybody benefits from it. You know, the content creator gets paid in a way uh, that's, you know, it's not obvious, I suppose. You know, if you put out good content, you get subscribers, they make a bit of money off it, and the person watching it enjoys it, and, you know, that, that circle. And then there's that kind of bit in the middle. Uh, I, I, I dare say, I, I come into the, you know, the latter half of that, where I do, I have a channel, it's a bit of fun. Uh, I make videos about things I'm interested in. I talk about things that bother me, things that interest me, things that, you know, anything that really takes my fancy. And I, I post that out, I'm not really looking for validation for anything that I do, but I'm not going to lie, it is nice when somebody comments on something and they say they enjoyed it or they liked it or they like your view on certain things and yeah, it is, it totally fans your flames and uh, yeah, it, it, is, it is nice. And similarly, I have a separate channel I've just recently launched uh, for MMC and Media where I'm putting my films and documentaries specifically. Uh, there's no talking heads, no no YouTube standard vlogs or anything like that. It's just about my my films and people can go watch them and uh, and it's just simply MMCM Media and that's it. But I decided I had to separate the two because during this lockdown, my this channel, my Mikey McManus channel, was becoming a bit skewed in that initially I started making vlogs about working on TV production and it was the, the correlation between me as the, the operator and working on these sets and my my journey, my trials and tribulations, and then as lockdown happened, that stopped, and then I had to make content up that wasn't with, like, so it started becoming a, like a, a standard YouTube vlog channel, but I don't want to separate, you know, I, I didn't want to um, shy away from my filmmaker side of it, and I, I just wanted to keep the two very separate, because I do have ideas of things I wanted to record, but professionally I wouldn't want anybody looking at my, my website and then finding my YouTube channel and thinking, oh yeah, this guy, this guy has views. Oh yeah, but I would rather them look at my creative ability, my uh, my ability behind out, uh, you know, on a drone and on camera, uh, and judge me on my um, my ability to operate these things rather than my thoughts and musings. But certainly, it, it is a window because you can watch something and then see the potential. I know my kids enjoy watching, um, you know, gymnastics and uh, people who do these crazy stunts. You know, whether it be I mean, they're only six and three right enough, but it gives them an opportunity to see what's out in the world. You know, if there's people out on jet skis, on motorboats, or doing um, skydiving, or bungee jumping, or cliff climbing, and high wire, or fire, poi, staff sticks, and all that kind of stuff. There's all these things that I didn't get a look at when I was younger, uh, because I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the parents who were into things like that, but also I didn't have the media access to it. So YouTube's a great way to show children, look, this is out there, this is available, you could do that if you wanted to and apply yourself. Uh, and the same for us as well as adults, you know, I, you know, if I, drones are quite a popular thing just now and there's a lot of people out there who have drones, but some people don't really use them the same way I do. Uh, and if somebody saw one of my videos and thought, wow, how do you do that? You know, that'd be kind of cool. Uh, or uh, yes, I have a drone, and we use the same drone, perhaps I could achieve that. And it is very achievable. Um, so I think 
it is a good journey for people to find content that interests them. Uh, obviously, interests just to watch. Uh, and if you have the the inspiration to go and try it, then that's always a that's an, an additional win. I would see. Um, you know, um, I know you and I we do the old bit landscape photography, and people watch it. Uh, Maybe it's enough for somebody to pick up their, their camera and head out into a field and go for that old lone tree. But um, some people just like to watch and don't want to, you know, do. So I would say the platform is is, is important for the right things. And I know it can be abused. Uh, people see it as a, a way of, well, it used to be the old access TV, cable TV. Uh, you you know, the Americans were big for that in the 80s where you, you ran a TV show out your basement to try and get your word out. Uh, but now everybody's got the access to it because all you really need to do is pick up a phone, record yourself and hit, you know, share and that's it, it's out there. That's a very powerful tool to have because whatever you say will be listened to. Uh, you know, whether people hear it is another thing. But uh, if you have the right dynamic approach, you know, you could just uh, you could just say the right or the wrong thing to the right or the wrong person. And finally, what do you wish you'd known when you were first starting out? What would you go back now if you could and tell yourself? I suppose as a parent now, I'm finding that there's things my daughter's asking about that I just wish I had probably stuck in it when I was younger. Um, obviously a bit of home learning's happening just now where the schools are closed. So I'm finding out pretty hard how you convey this information to a six-year-old. Uh, and it's difficult. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, there's easy things when kids are grown up, you know, something's hot, you don't touch it or you burn yourself. That's quite simple until the point they do touch it and they burn themselves and then the registration happens. But when they start asking questions about, my daughter the other day just asked me um, what the centre of the earth looks like. And uh, while we, well, nobody's actually physically seen it, um, there is enough geological evidence to support that there is, you know, uh, there's, you know, between the crust and the mantle and the inner core and all that kind of stuff. But without a visually, because this happened in the car, so how do I describe the centre of the earth uh, to a six-year-old? And it took a good 30 minutes because um, we were um, we were travelling from point A to, to B and uh, that's where that conversation took place. And I, I hope I delivered the right information. I did actually come home and Google it and make sure I gave her the right info. Um, but it was not necessarily whether I was right about what I told her. It was just like how I told her and how she took it on board because uh, obviously every statement came with another question. So I think if I could go back and tell myself anything, it would be to learn more. I would certainly apply myself more to things that I did. I'm starting to see it in my, my kids. If something's too hard, they're leaving it. And I think I was like that as well. And I only gained that that ability the older that I got. So I feel as if I missed out a little bit. You know, investigate everything, look at everything catalogue everything. One thing I didn't do, and I've lived quite a full life, I would say, I haven't always taken photos, I haven't always catalogued it. Uh, my grandparents, when they passed, left boxes and boxes of you know photographs, which my mum and dad have, uh, and they're in this massive box in their shed, and you go through all that, and I just think, you know, every day I take photos of the kids, and we we have a folder full of stuff for them, and we'll catalogue their life, our life together and everything. But there's a, I think there's a period between when I was when I was joining the army in my teens up until 
oh, probably the late 2000s, mid 2000s, that there's very, very little evidence to support my existence. So other than learning more and absorbing more, I would certainly catalogue more. And that's the three things I would tell myself if I could, you know, if I could go back and tell myself, you know, because it's, it's a good way to, to learn if you remember your history. Yeah, you know, as a historian, I suppose I get given that, that label. I'm not really, that's not a proper label. Um, I studied history. I like it. You know, we can always learn from the past going forward. Although you'd think in today's current environment, that's, uh, yeah, that's a bit of a new point, that. But yes, uh, yeah, that's probably what I'd tell myself. That was actually quite a, that was actually quite a hard question. I'm having to think about that one there. I've just, I'm just staring out the window here at a brick wall thinking, yeah, that is, uh, that is deep, man. That is deep. But yes, that's what I'll go with. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the Photography-ish podcast this week, Mikey. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. If you want to know more about Mikey McManus, please do a quick Google search for his name, which will bring up his YouTube channel, his website. Also, check out his Instagram as well, because he posts some incredible images. And check out that Love Letter to Scotland video on his YouTube page too, because it is absolutely fantastic. There's always been a debate about whether straight out of camera photographs are any good. With the advancing technologies in cameras as well as the affordability and ease of gaining access to post-processing software, the conversation is still up in the air. There are a number of things to talk about though on both sides of the fence. When digital cameras became more and more accessible, photography became more accessible for more people. There are still people out there who shoot film but I would say the vast majority have a modern day digital camera. There are people out there who take JPEG images and share them on Instagram. Standing for straight out of camera, hashtag SOOC is often included in the copy and sometimes feels like it's put here as a sort of accomplishment, sort of a look at what I achieved without any post-processing. The fact is though that your camera has done something to the image. It's provided some sort of processing to the image and that is something that we must remember. Personally, if you followed me for any time on YouTube, I shot in JPEG for a number of years. I did this for a couple of reasons. The first being that I didn't feel I knew enough about photography to start shooting in RAW. The second being that I didn't have any post-processing skill or time to learn. The third was because I wanted to work on various other parts of photography before even considering to add new skills to my ammunition bag. That sounds fair, doesn't it? If we rid the perhaps snobbery about how you shoot, we should first ask what you want to get right in camera. The composition of the scene is one of the main things. What you imagine the shot looking like, maybe what you had visualised in your head. If that is enough for you and you're happy with the composition, does it matter if someone comments on your photo saying that you can make it better with your own post-processing? What is the word better? Who are you shooting for? We're going to talk about that in a minute, but... We, we need to ask what you want to get done out of camera. What process you want to put the photograph that you've captured through. Have you got enough right in camera to allow you to do what you want to do with it out of camera? From subtle contrast changes to complete image alteration, some people don't want to do any of that. It doesn't mean they're wrong. They're just doing it their own way. This might not be the way it's done, but there are people out there making a photography career from only shooting in JPEG. 
I think it's a tool and a crutch. It's maybe about getting to know what your camera can do, getting the best out of your gear rather than knowing that you can sort it out in an edit suite afterwards. If you take an image and think it's not very good, it's not really going to get much better once it's been through an edit suite. If you don't like the composition, you'll never like the composition. A poor image is never going to be an excellent image, regardless of editing. Post-processing can be fantastic, utterly fantastic, yet it can often be used as a crutch, like I said. Don't forget as well that some people can overuse Lightroom or other similar software, and eventually the images can look overly and obviously processed. So why are you taking photos? We must remember that we are all different. We all have different reasons to take photographs and different stories which have led us to this point in our photography journey. Whether you're just beginning, you've been a professional for decades, or perhaps you might even be on the verge of throwing in the towel. If you were taking photographs for yourself, that is the perfect thing. There are many niches that I've talked about before of photography. Some of them require a quick turnaround, so you don't always want or need a raw file. News photography and even some documentary photography need speed, so straight out of the camera photographs are often fine. Of course, many cameras capture both in RAW and JPEG together, so you can always come back to the RAW file at a later date. There are many social media influencers out there who know diddly squat about Lightroom, but produce Instagrammable images day in, day out. They use post-processing in a different way by applying filters that come with photo apps on their smartphones. Phone photography is taking great strides forward, especially with the likes of Huawei, who are seemingly adding a phone to a camera. That's how good the cameras are on these things. Of course, taking an image and putting a filter on it is post-processing. Maybe not traditional post-processing, but if the person wasn't looking glamorous or the room not looking on point, no filter can change that. The first requirement is an image which a filter can be applied to. Simply relying on filters is not enough. There needs to be less judgment and more support. There needs to be less pixel peeping. There needs to be more encouragement, more praise for simply getting out there and pushing the shutter button on the camera. There is no right way of doing anything in this world. If there was, it would be rather boring. Creativity breeds creativity. Trying new things and breaking the rules is brave. If you don't try things, you'll never know what could happen. Similarly, there are post-processing people who can take a photograph and make it look a hundred times better than it did when it was first captured. Getting it how you want it in camera to then get the image to that point of perfection out of camera, should you want to, is perhaps the ideal balance. Thanks ever so much for joining me on the Photography-ish podcast this week. I hope you enjoyed the chat about different things and I especially hope you enjoyed the interview with Mikey McManus. Please go and follow him on Instagram and on his YouTube channel as well. I'll be back soon with more great interviews, some more topics to discuss. Until then, stay safe, look after each other and I'll see you very soon.